Colossians chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. Colossians 1, verses 8 to 14. And you also told us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, and in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we're going to look at that passage over the next little while, so if you've closed it or switched it off, uh, do reopen it or switch back on. Um, while you're doing that, just to mention, um, evening services are back. So uh, if you've never joined us for an evening service or you do like those, uh, they start again quarter past six this evening at our church centre, Two Blackburn Place. Uh, if you find all of this like a bit big and a bit much, the evening service is much more chill, there's plenty of chance to talk to each other, more time to pray, and um, evening services over the next little while, we're thinking about how to grow in understanding and enjoying the Bible when I'm reading it by myself. So if you feel like a bit lost, or like Bible reading is dry, you know you should do it, but you never enjoy it, do come along this evening, and over the next few weeks we'll be thinking about that. Well, we're going to continue looking at Colossians, um, but I think it's relevant. One of the things that, uh, you know that rolling news coverage, there's been lots of it this week where the BBC has only felt able to cover stuff to do with the Queen even though nothing is actually happening. And today it like, feels like everybody who's ever met the Queen is on TV talking about the time they met the Queen. I was watching some of that this week and something said I thought was very interesting. The thing that stood out to me about the Queen was her humility. And he said it is remarkable because as soon as it became clear that she would become queen, which was very early on in her life, she was surrounded by people telling her that she was brilliant and wonderful because they would want something for her, something from her someday. She was surrounded by this. But he said she never gave that off. When we met her, she was always sort of like saying, don't make a fuss of me. Let me use my power and authority to serve other people. That's what he said. And this person, I think he was a Christian, he was a journalist, but he said that attitude was rooted in her faith in Jesus, Christianity. Well, that may be true of the Queen, and people say it is, but the Queen was at the pinnacle of what we might call in the UK the class system. And it's my experience that other people in the higher realms of that, what we might call upper class, posh people, uh, humility does not tend to be a mark of those people. Now, when I was in my early 20s, I had occasion to uh, be amongst a lot of posh people. It was total chance. I did not belong there by, uh, you know, being posh, just to be clear. 
I remember entering a room full of people who were all dressed a bit like this, and one of them coming up to me and saying, Do you beagle? <laughs> Which I later found out is like a way of saying fox hunting. There you go, we knew. I think it's a way of, so you don't have to say, Do you like chasing animals and you know, killing them for no reason? Do you say, Do you beagle? Um, anyway, these barking people who surrounded me, they seemed to be instilled with perfect confidence. And they were constantly asking me to repeat what I said. So, what do you say? And then they discovered my accent and they were like, Could you please say to us, How now, Brown? How? And then I'd say, My accent and all collapse in laughter. When that happens, what you feel is disqualified. And when you feel disqualified, like I don't really belong here, the temptation is to withdraw, to hide, to sort of live a half life. I had a lack of confidence, that's probably what I did. I sort of lurked apologetically around the edge of this confident group. Maybe they're right, maybe I shouldn't be here. The other option some people do when they're made to feel like this, made to feel disqualified, is they try and boost themselves into feeling qualified. So I remember once sitting at again a black tie dinner with this girl, and she looked across to me and went, and you went where? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> she was talking about what school I went to, so I said, it's just like a state school, and she was like, no, I see. And I turned to the person beside me and said, where is she from? And he went, Swansea. <laughs> <laughs> what she was doing was trying to boost herself by pretending to be something that she's not, so she could feel more qualified to be there. But there must be, mustn't there, a joy and a peace and a generosity, a humility that the Queen, I think, embodied, that comes from being in a place of privilege and really knowing that you are qualified to be there. It means you can relax, not have to prove yourself or hide. Now, many of my problems as a Christian, and I have many, come from lingering doubts about whether I am qualified not for some stupid black type party, but am I qualified enough for God to accept me? Am I qualified enough to be in the church? And there's some truth to that worry, because I look at myself and it's clear that based on my normal, pretty feeble attempts, I'm not qualified by God, based on what I do. And so many of you seem like such great Christians to me, so there seems a greater truth in that. And other Christians sometimes don't help, they give the impression, or even say out loud, I'm not really sure that you belong here. Socially, you're not like us. I'm not sure you do the things that we do. So sometimes that feeling of being disqualified, it's in my head. Sometimes it's true of other Christians. And we do the same things as people do when they're with posh people. We withdraw. We come into church, we slip in, hide, lurk, slip out. We live a shriveled, unhappy, uneasy Christian life. Wondering every day, would God really want to hear from me? Or we play the game. We put on to everybody, of course I'm qualified. <laughs> Look, this person says I'm wonderful. Look at this amazing Christian thing that I did. Boasting about how great you are. Proving yourself. Feeding off the approval of others. But that's not the life of gentle service and humility the Bible describes as Christians. Both are wrong. There is
Colossians is saying, a happy place, a place of joy, where you know you're qualified before God, and that allows you to enjoy being with other Christians. This church in Colossae, they were a church of young, enthusiastic Christians, and they were grappling with, struggling with everybody else's passion and seriousness and joy. They were like, maybe we don't belong unless we do what they do. And Paul is saying to them, don't withdraw, don't live a Christian half-life hiding, neither do you boast throwing your spiritual weight around. There is a joyful, patient, gracious and assured way to live. And it's the gospel, the message about Jesus you believe to become a Christian, it's that that helps you live that assured, qualified life. So here's the first thing that we see in our passage today. God qualifies you. Imagine me, back there in my early 20s, at that party with all the beaglers, <laughs> that's what they call themselves, where I felt totally out of place. Now this never happened, but imagine if one of those people had come up to me and said, you can't be here. You're too common. You're too Irish. You don't beagle. You're out. I could have scuttled away, intimidated, into really not claiming what's mine because someone else is cooking off. Or I could have put on my posh accent, as you've noticed, I can do one of those, and pretended to be something I'm not. Oh yes, I love you. I could have done that. Or do you know what I could have just done? With my invitation. Said, look, here is my invite from the principal. He qualified me to be here when he said that. Imagine further, imagine it turned out I was related to the person throwing the party. He was like best mates with my dad or something. He used to hold me on the slap as a baby and we're mates. Then I'm not just going to wave my invitation to the person who says I was disqualified, I'm going to go like have a chat with the host, fist bump him, share a beer, have a chat. I'm invited to enjoy his friendship. Often we are attacked by wondering if we're qualified. We think when we think about God, about the things we've got wrong, or somewhere we feel not good enough, or somewhere we really notice we don't seem to fit with Christians, or maybe even Christians doing a very bad job and making you feel left out. And then we remember what's true about me, pretending to be posh would have been pretending. Pretending to be good enough to be welcomed by God would be wrong too. This is not a sort of like, you've got this girlfriend talk. Respect yourself. Grow your self-esteem. We're not saying that. We're saying you don't have it in yourself. But the message of the gospel about Jesus is this. If you trust him, you ask him, God the Father has qualified you. We see that in our passage today, in verse 12. God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy people. Do you see that? It's not that you are qualified by being a holy person. He has qualified you to share with the holy people because he wants you there. Maybe you really feel like you're not a holy person. You're a bad person, a messed up person, a not special person. Well, it's God the Father's party. He has qualified you once you trust in Jesus to share in every good and brilliant thing that all the holy looking people get. That is 
the gospel, as Paul calls it in this passage. It is really irrelevant what your sin is, or what impression other people have of you, or how good you are treating other people well, all the things that might make you feel disqualified. They're irrelevant. Because once you trust Jesus, the Father, whose party it is, qualifies you. And he welcomes you like the very best friend of your family to fist bump, to hang out with, to receive blessing and enjoy relationship with him. There's three pictures of that in this passage. Here's the first one. A kingdom, you'll see it in verse 13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. There are people who think about the world, that what's going on in the world is there's just a whole lot of people trying their best. We're all one human race and we're all muddling along together. That's not right. The true history of the human race is that spiritually, behind the scenes, there are two kingdoms at war with each other. A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And if you find that weird, I just want to say that makes more sense of the tragedy and tension of the world we live in, I think. This world feels like the scene of a war between good and evil, rather than a nice place where everyone is trying their best. And Paul says there is a place where you can be ruled by darkness. Which seems extreme, but we often talk here at Christchurch about how we think we're free. But in fact, our lives are ruled by forces we don't control and aren't always good. You're one of the examples I feel. Maybe you've achieved something in your life. Maybe a great job. You say, well, I was free to achieve that, and I did that myself. It's like, who decides what jobs are good jobs? It wasn't you. Someone else, a force you never controlled, said, this is a good thing to do, and you bought that, and you did it. We are all, whether it's society or government, whatever, the Bible's view is that there are spiritual forces at work controlling us to make bad and selfish decisions. But there is another kingdom at war with those kingdoms, the kingdom where God's son is in charge. And he wins that war not by crushing or manipulating or controlling, but by serving us, dying for us. Later on in Colossians, Paul will say, Jesus' death defeats every spiritual power. We'll see more about that in a few weeks. So there's a different kingdom on offer, not one where you're a pawn in someone else's grasp for power or money, but a kingdom where the father loves his son, where there is a perfect relationship of putting one another first. And the son shows that by coming to earth and serving and loving and welcoming anyone who wants to come. At his own cost. He's ruling the other kingdom, the kingdom of light, and if you trust him, you are in that kingdom now. Now the point of all of this is this, if two countries are at war, you can't belong to them both. It used to be when there were two big blocks of power in the world, the east and the west, people used to what we call defect if they were American citizens and they wanted to join the Soviet Republic, you couldn't say, just going to keep my American citizenship but also live in Moscow. You couldn't do it. You've just had to defect from one loyalty to another. And 
Paul is saying here, it's the same with the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But listen, if you trust Jesus, the Father has moved you when you became a Christian from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You can't be both at the same time. So if you've trusted Jesus, you are qualified by him to live in Jesus' kingdom. You are qualified to take your place in the beautiful, loving, service, gracious Son of God where he's in charge. You can't have a foot in both camps, and you don't. He has moved you into Jesus' kingdom. It is a complete and finished change of citizenship. And so he's moved you to where the ruling principle is grace and welcome, not competition or comparison or work. Paul is saying here, listen, this is the way it works. You are either a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, where you work to be justified all the time for the benefit of evil powers, or you belong to the kingdom birthed out of a father, loving his son, and longing to include you in that. You can't be in both at the same time. And if you've trusted Jesus, you have moved. You're fully, you fully belong to him. Here's the second picture that we see. Redemption. That's not a word we use that much these days. I was once in a talk where a very stern and quite famous preacher was making this point. He said, we don't really use the word redeem these days. And I turned to the person beside me and said louder than I thought, reward points. And I was like, oh, I actually said that in my normal voice. Not in this room. And there were probably about a couple of hundred people there and this famous preacher turned and said, did someone say something? And I was like, mm -hmm, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. But the person beside me said, oh yes, Morris said something about how you can understand redeem. I was like, well, at least you took me down with you. <laughs> um, so I said, oh yes, uh, he was American with picture. I was like, oh yes, there's actually this system here where when you go to Tesco's, you can slide your card and you get points and then you can use them to redeem like rewards that you want. I was like, am I really sitting in this village? It's giving reward points to this famous preacher. He just stood and watched me for a long time and then went, please don't interrupt me again. <laughs> Very stern man. Anyway, if not reward points, another place that you might redeem, another thing you might redeem, you might hear that word, is if you have a mortgage. Uh, mortgage is the French for death grip. <laughs> mortgage is where you borrow money from the bank and until you pay them back, they partially own your house. <coughs> when you pay all of the money off, the house is redeemed. It properly belongs to you. Now there are many ways people feel about being a Christian, but one of them is this, that people get really wrong. They think God's kindness is like a mortgage. It's sort of lent to you, and you have to slowly pay him back through your life for being so kind to you. God is so good, you need to pay him back. If you really loved him, you'd try and pay him back for being so good to you. Well, one glad day, my house will be redeemed for, from the bank. My mortgage will be paid off. The house will be mine. Let me tell you what I will not be doing. I will not be going down to the bank and saying, Oh, I really, really love this house though, so can I pay you a bit more money to show how much I love it? Of course I won't. It's redeemed. It belongs to me because it's paid for. No payment needed. 
Once it's redeemed, the burden of the burden of payment is lifted, and all there is is enjoyment. Given redemption, Paul says. And what he's saying here is this: God bought you to belong to him through Jesus. And listen, it's again, something is either redeemed or it isn't. You know, as, while I still owe money to the bank, my house is not redeemed. As the last penny is paid, it's redeemed. You're either bought and belong to God or you don't. And if you are, which you are once you trust in Jesus, he pays. There is nothing more to be paid. That's just enjoying what he's bought for you. As an aside, there are all sorts of people suggesting your works will earn good stuff from God. People in other religions, some religions actually say that. They say there's a balance of sheet of good and bad acts, and if you have enough good acts, God will reward you with good stuff. According to Jesus, that is wrong. There are even versions of Christianity that are still being confusing about this. Talking as if the way we live the Christian life is trying to pay God back for his goodness to us. It's hidden in lots of places, but if you ever hear that, you're like spider sense should be tingling. I remember hearing a talk once where someone was explaining the gospel to people who aren't Christians and they explained that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Then he said, pointing his finger, Jesus did this for you. What will you do for him? Do you see the understanding there? It's like, he's done something for you, now pay him back. That's just, Paul says, not how it works. He says, you have redemption. You have it. He's paid. God is glad to have paid because he wants you in the house. You have redemption. That payment is finished. Third picture in the passage, the forgiveness of sins. One of the things we do here at Christchurch is exploring Christianity, which is if you're exploring the Christian faith, you can ask questions and discover what it is that we believe. Um, one of the questions that uh, we used to discuss when I did exploring Christianity was this. Say you become a Christian. You trust Jesus by hearing the gospel. And then shortly after trusting Jesus, you flip out, you lose your temper, and you do something really terrible. And immediately that you've done that, you run out of the building, realising what you've done, and you get run over by us. Will you still be welcomed by God into heaven? It's amazing how many people think, no, you won't. Not if you haven't said sorry for that particular thing before you're hit by the bus. But let's be clear about what the earliest Christians thought. They thought, as Paul says, once you trust Jesus, you have the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is something that you have through Jesus, not through you. You have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, from when you had faith, from when you put your trust in the gospel. Now again, there are huge religious church structures built on like rationing forgiveness to us. Well, okay, you've made a good start by becoming a Christian, but you can only keep being granted forgiveness if you do certain things at certain times. And if you hear that, that is not what the earliest Christians thought. Isn't it clear? Paul says, in Jesus you have 
the forgiveness of sins. So Christians might even be sitting here wondering today about something they've done. Does God really still accept me? Paul says it's in Jesus you have the forgiveness of sins. We're going to sing a song later in the service that has these words. No condemnation, now I dread. I don't fear condemnation anymore. Why? Jesus and all that is in him is mine. What I have done is irrelevant. People just can't... We struggle to get that, don't we? We think, we must be aware that I get forgiveness. But just think about it. If we are, there's another way of getting forgiveness. That means we're back in the qualified, disqualified game again. Hiding from God or others because we're sinful. Or boasting and proud. Look at me, I've done the right thing to get forgiveness. And the gospel sweeps all of that away and says, in Jesus you have forgiveness of sins. You may wonder why we sometimes confess our sins in church, even ask God for forgiveness. Well, it's not because we are in doubt that we have forgiveness of sins through Jesus. It's just one of the strange things the Bible does, encourage us, us to pray things we know are already true because it's good for us. But the truth about the Christian life is we live in a state of forgiveness of sins. And it's because we know that we feel free to bring all of this stuff that's wrong before God. We don't hide it from each other. Now, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you're probably sitting here thinking, yeah, I hear this every week. I hear it. I know it. Trusting Jesus, faith in the gospel, you're qualified by God. He's brought me under the rule of the son he loves. He's bought me to belong to him. I have forgiveness of sins, whatever they are. I get that. Sounds simple, really. If you believe the gospel, you are qualified by God. You don't need to hide meekly, hoping you're good enough. You don't need to put on a front. Look at me, the things I've done. You're qualified. And as I say, we talk about this every week, probably every week. But let me tell you something. Like this church in Tawasi, like Christ Church Liverpool, like every group of Christians I've ever been in, there are Christians hiding because they don't think they're qualified. Or Christians boasting, trying to prove they're qualified, which just goes to show that while we might all, who knows, we might all sign up to this, it's hard to actually trust it. Let me tell you about my DIY projects. Every single DIY project I do in my house and my life, I look at it and think, that looks pretty simple. It's an easy thing to do. I've seen them do it like in about two minutes on DIY SOS. And then you start and you think, oh, this isn't simple. But I've actually pulled the old thing down now. So uh, I better learn how to do it. Or phone someone. There isn't enough skill in my whole brain to do this, no matter how hard I try, actually. Even though it's just a bit of wallpaper. 
I think it's a bit like that with the Gospel. What I've just explained is a basic truth that anyone who comes here regularly will know and believe. Trust in Jesus, you're right with God. And yet still, getting it into your heart is hard. We're still hiding, feeling like a rubbish Christian, allowing that to control my life. But we're still showing off. Look at me, serving, praying, thinking I'm doing a great job. There isn't enough in me to believe this, truly, no matter how hard I try. And Paul gets that. I love verse 11, which is the bit just before he's described all of this. He says what he's praying for the Colossians, and he says this. I'm praying that you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. He is praying about the God we talked about last week, the God who creates universes by speaking. He's saying, I'm praying he will give you all of the power that he has, his glorious might. Why do you need that? So that you are able to patiently keep believing the gospel. I mean, he gets this. He gets this is hard. He gets we struggle to believe this. He's like, I know. That's why I'm praying that God will give you all of his mighty strength to keep trusting that this is true. This radical transformation in us happens when we know we're qualified by God through Jesus, but this idea we're not qualified is really deeply ingrained. You know it. The symptoms are there every time you compete, every time you complain, every time you hide. And so Paul says, I know that, that's why I'm praying that the strength of God will shift in you. So that sense you have, when you became a Christian that you needed to trust Jesus, that will keep going, you will joyfully endure believing that. And so he marks out a third better option, not hiding a weakness, oh I'm so feeble, I can't do anything, not showing off. Look at me, I'm great. I deserve to be here. But joyfully living in thanks to God. You're not lurking, not pretending. You're just enjoying the party. You know, when you tell people this, they're qualified through Jesus. Sometimes people say you can't go around telling people that because then everyone will just do what they want. There's no sort of motivation there to stop sinning. Paul says, the, the life God wants from you, the transformation he wants, is like this joyful thankfulness to him. And that happens when you are given power by him to see that you are truly qualified. I think that's why we do we'll look at it in detail. At the start of this prayer, Paul says, oh, I'm praying for you to live a really good life. Because these keen Christians, they love that. They're like, yes, I must try harder to live a good life. We're very serious about God, so what do we need to do to live a good life? And do you hear that from Christians today, that saying, oh, you just knuckled on, just get on with it. But that is not honouring to God, is it? To say to him and say to everybody else, well, you just knuckled on and obey him. No. What is honouring to God is when you acknowledge he has moved kingdoms, 
He has bought you. He has forgiven you. And life becomes about honouring that gift in joyful thankfulness. But Paul knows, I know, you know, it is hard to get there. It's hard to get that into me through the difficulties of life, the things I mess up, a blanket of depression or anxiety, or other Christians seeming so much better than me, or weighed down by the things I feel like I ought to do. It's hard to get because it seems far away and this sinful thing, this wrong relationship, this lifestyle pulls my affections. And Paul says, yeah, that is why I am praying for God's mighty power to pour out in your life so you can really get this into you. We talked last week about the expulsive power of a new affection. That is when you love something so much, it expels your love for other things. And that's what Paul is calling us to here, is saying, enjoy God and what he's given you so much that will just expel all the stuff you know is wrong in your life. What will fill you instead is joyful thankfulness. And so we get to the end of sermons like this, and people are like, yeah, yeah, okay, I really get the gospel's true, and I really get I should believe it, but what should I do? Paul doesn't like that question. He's like, joyfully give thanks because God strengthened you. But I think the thing to say about what we should do is this. You do whatever it takes to keep the truth of how God is towards you in Jesus in front of you. The language Paul uses is set your heart, set your mind on what God has done. What helps you do that? Because you will experience freedom from hiding and freedom from pride. A life strengthened by God's mighty power, a life of joyful thankfulness. Let's come back to where we started. How is it that someone, the most famous person in the world actually, meets people and they are marked by her sense of humility? How is that? Well isn't it, as she said herself, that she's been taught by Jesus the true knowledge that we are all qualified by God. And that's joyful thankfulness. It's not grim, it's not hard, it's not looking at the, it's joyful thankfulness that can be spread. We've been privileged to live in an era to have that demonstrated by our head of state. But we get that same invitation to be as qualified as she is and experience joyful thanks.